Hello everyone and welcome back to series 10 of the Great Women Artists podcast. I am so excited to say that this series is supported by the Levitt Collection, a vast and varied art collection of which a major portion is dedicated to fantastic works by women artists. The Levitt Collection's support for women in the arts is such that preparations are in full swing for the creation of the new museum, FAM, F-A-M-M, which will be opening in June 2024 in Mougins in the south of France. It will be the first major museum in mainland Europe dedicated to solely female artists and will exhibit a myriad of artworks all from the collection. Impressionist, surrealist, modern and contemporary art created by women from around the world will take pride of place in the Levitt's new museum, Female Artists of the Mujan Museum. But in the meantime, stay tuned by following at fam.mujan and don't miss the beautiful book Abstract Expressionists, The Women, published by Morel, which presents a selection of works from the collection alongside richly illustrated essays by scholars Ellen G. Landau and Joan M. Marta, all available now. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the world-renowned classic scholar and professor at the University of Cambridge, Caroline Vout. Born in Durham, Vout studied for a BA at Newnham College, Cambridge, completed her MA at the Courtauld and PhD back in Cambridge, where she spent a very formative year as a Rome scholar at the British School at Rome. Since 2006, she has been based in Cambridge, where she is a fellow at Christ's College. The author of seven formative books that have expanded my mind on the ancient world are thinking around gendered bodies, imperfect bodies, and the perception of women through these vessels, from classical art, a life history from antiquity to the present, to the more recently published Exposed. Vout has been instrumental in pushing forward classical research, and next year she will curate a major exhibition at the Fitzwilliam Museum. But the reason why we are speaking with Carrie today is because of how her research challenges the ideal forms of the Greek and Roman body, whereas a body cast in marble or bronze sitting atop a pedestal might be the template that we have, and one that European painters have so often perpetuated through idealised portrayals of men and women. Vout argues this is a lie, and that the ancient bodies were in fact anxious, ailing, imperfect, diverse, and in turn, much more like us than we might at first glean. And I can't wait to find out more. Carrie Vout, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I am very well. Thank you, Katie. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me here at Cambridge today. I have been fascinated by your work for a long time. You've taught me so much about classical bodies. By showing me different versions of bodies that are not actually what society deems as perfect, you've also taught me that they are in fact much more relevant 
to society and our bodies today. So I want to start by asking you, why are you drawn to exploring and investigating the Greek body? So I think when you think about Greek and Roman bodies, you think about sculpture. And sculpture is inevitably in our space, in our face. You know, it sort of demands that you think about how you measure up to it. So I suppose I find Greek and Roman bodies in that sculptural form fascinating because they kind of force me to think about similarities that I might share with the ancients, but also ways in which I'm really different. They force me to think about how those sculptures do and don't look like they did back in antiquity when they were made. And they force me to think about whether they ever looked, even in antiquity, anything like the Greeks. And in thinking about those questions, that makes me more conscious about my own physicality, my own place in the world. So I think it's the sculpture that really got me interested in the body in the first place. Yes, when we look at sculpture and painting, I mean, so much of that sort of sculptural present is so felt. I mean, how was the Greek body presented to you? You know, I was brought up in a family that didn't really go to museums. If you'd said to me, what's that? I wouldn't have had a clue. But even I couldn't really avoid Greek and Roman sculptures because they are kind of everywhere. I didn't know they were Greek or Roman, but they are kind of very much part of our psyche. I remember looking at a photo album at home and seeing a picture of me, I think in Corfu, standing in front of a statue of a wounded Achilles. At least I now know it's a wounded Achilles. I didn't know at the time. You know, they're everywhere. So that's my sort of first contact with them. And then I came to university because I thought misguidedly that I was good at Latin, which I'm not really. (laughs) And I thought what I would do is, you know, study language and literature And I met Mary Beard, who was my teacher. And from the minute I sort of was introduced to different bits of ancient evidence, bits beyond the text, I suddenly realised that that was actually what really captivated me and excited me and that I was good at looking. That was the starting point for really the rest of my career. But that is so fascinating, isn't it? Like this idea that we are actually constantly surrounded by these bodies, yet lots of us don't even know who Achilles is or that story. So it's this amazing thing. I think that's why I'm so excited to do this podcast, because it's like, what is our kind of route to these places, to these people? No, I think that's right. I mean, I don't know whether you noticed, but when you stepped off the train at Cambridge Station today, you know, there's Gavin Turk's sculpture in the forecourt, and it's a sleeping Ariadne figure all bundled up. You go to Cambridge North Station, you've got a Farnese Hercules in aluminium made by Matthew Derbyshire. And I remember talking to Matthew and he's saying, look, what's wonderful for him about these things is that they're so much part of the psyche that they're almost like a brand. And so you can then play, you know, you can riff with that and really have fun with that. And I'm interested in doing that, but I'm also interested in thinking about how the hell we've gotten to this point and what happens if you try and strip it back to antiquity and think about how these things functioned in antiquity. Because, you know, I can tell you now the Greeks didn't look like that any more than we look like that. Totally. But I think this is what's so interesting. And you touch upon this, I think, very early on in your book, you know, this idea that the gods were made in human form. And actually, that was the kind of danger of it, that actually, when we are surrounded by these sculptures, it's almost as though we have to live up to these ideals. Yeah, I mean, the minute the Greeks and Romans think about making their gods in human form, they've got a problem. I mean, it makes sense that they would do that. Because ultimately, you know, if you're feeling anxious in life, and you're praying for some sort of intervention then it makes sense to imagine a shape that has ears (laughs) or a shape that has arms that can give you a hug but at the same time the moment you think that you can 
give God a body, then what sort of hubristic thought is that? Because, you know, God is bigger than you can possibly imagine. Ancient Greek and Roman gods could shapeshift. If you're a sculptor, for example, you have to commit to a shape. You have to decide, I'm going to give Aphrodite this body. You know, that's a very, very dangerous thing to do. And so they generate all sorts of problems, but those problems are productive because they enable them to think about what it is to be a a mortal, to be a human being vis-a-vis something else, you know, and that might be a god or it might be a beast. So I'm interested in those ways of thinking. I'm interested in the sort of solutions that they come up with for trying to understand why on earth they were here and why we're here. Totally. It's so interesting, though, because, I mean, I should add to the audience, we just had a look around the cast gallery, which I'd never been to. And if anyone comes to Cambridge, please have a look, because it is extraordinary. Because when we do go around these museums, or we go to the British Museum, or we go to Rome, or we go anywhere like that with all these casts, it's so often these kind of idealised bodies as well, which is a bit daunting, because I just saw the Farnese Hercules for the first time. And I couldn't believe the kind of scale of it. Farnese Hercules is an incredibly buff man. And and his sort of veins were almost popping out his skin. I mean, it's it's kind of daunting in a way. And he's, I mean, 10 foot high or 12 foot high or something. Yeah. But I mean, the Farnese Hercules is kind of designed to be daunting. Yeah. So, you know, the Farnese Hercules is, well, ours is a plaster cast of a Roman sculpture that was itself based on a now lost Greek bronze original. And that Roman sculpture was displayed in what was then Rome's biggest bathhouse so that everybody that went to bathe and went to take their clothes off would be confronted with this brute of a beast, of a sculpture. And you said, you know, kind of what a man, but of course he's a man that's the son of Zeus. So he's kind of not a man like most men. And, you know, I often wonder whether back in ancient Rome, when bathers stood there and looked up at that, whether they did think, oh, if I train a bit harder or train a bit harder, I might get muscles that big. Or whether they actually thought that is so ludicrous, it's off the scale. And that it in some ways functioned as a warning as much as a sort of incentive. It's extreme even by antiquity standards. Most ancient bodies, they're buff, but they don't look like that. So Hercules was born with a god as a father. So Zeus is sort of, you know, the big god, but with a mortal mum. So Zeus or Jupiter as he becomes for the Romans often is imagined coming down from Olympus, finding a mortal man or woman to have sexual pleasure with and sometimes begetting children as a result. And Hercules was one of those children and then has to kind of spend the rest of his life doing a series of labours, physical exercise really, to prove himself. And one day he will wind up on Olympus himself. But he's a difficult figure because he's sort of, is it, how divine is he? How human is he? He's sort of the perfect figure for thinking about the limits of masculinity, really. And he kind of tends to get it a bit wrong. So, you know, he drinks too much. He sleeps with too many people. He's kind of too, too in every respect. So, you know, in a culture which puts so much emphasis on, you know, some people might be born male. But they have to prove themselves. They have to prove their masculinity kind of publicly at every turn. You know, and how active can you be publicly without becoming too active, too monstrous? What what you just said now is so interesting, because, you know, if I look at a Farnese Hercules, I know it's a bit too much. And for me, it's a bit too much. But 
actually, it is sort of very idealised. What made you think about the imperfection of Greek bodies? I think we're so surrounded by the sculptures that we tend to take them for granted. And if we don't take them for granted, then we find their idealisation really quite problematic, especially because, you know, in antiquity they were painted, but they've since lost their paint. And because they've lost their paint, they stand there bright and white. And so whiteness and the ideal get married up together in ways that then prove racially extremely dangerous in the 19th century. I mean, it's it's so interesting, this idea, I think, of shame as well in bodies. I mean, also just going around the cast gallery, seeing, you know, Aphrodite or Venus, the sort of evolution of her. And it sort of made me really think about Eve and this idea of sort of naked versus the nude. I mean, could you talk a bit about how classical bodies influenced Christian bodies and then the sort of evolution of like how it's then informed images of women? So Aphrodite is absolutely fundamental here. The story goes that the first ever freestanding, monumental, nude female figure in Greece or Rome is an Aphrodite. And that when she is produced in the 4th century BC, she's so shocking that when she's offered to one community, they say, actually, no, thank you. Could we have one with clothes on? But Canidos take her and they make her the cult statue in their temple. And she's a raving success. She becomes a real tourist destination. And she's shocking because here you have a female form without clothes on for the first time. And it's a female form that by virtue of the way that it's positioning its arms that sort of both sort of disguise the sex organs, but also kind of signal to the sex organs It's a female form that seems to sort of draw the viewer in and encourage a kind of voyeurism or love of looking that really makes the viewer feel empowered. Except that they know that they can't possibly be looking at a mortal woman because no mortal woman would be standing there without their clothes on and because the setting is a temple. And so all the time they're looking and feeling like they're increasingly getting empowered if that's what they are feeling if they're not feeling that they may be feeling turned on or they may be feeling shame as you say they also you know they've been brought up with the idea that you see a god without any clothes on bathing in a wood or whatever and she doesn't want to be seen and god help you you know terrible things will happen to you Actian sees diana bathing she turns him into a stag and has him ripped apart by his own hunting dogs so aphrodite is this sort of female form that forces the viewer to think about gendered viewing and about the relationship of marble and flesh and girl and goddess in really interesting ways that then have a profound effect on the European art historical tradition. I mean, Eve, when late antique Roman artists come to try and give shape to the stories that they're inheriting from the Hebrew Bible, they need to make them fit their own visual tradition. And, you know, they do that by turning Eve into a kind of Aphrodite type figure whose sort of raison d'etre is to attract the male gaze in ways that make the man feel 
uncomfortable and um but that gesture that i was talking about with aphrodite of a kind of is she covering her sex organs or is she signaling that becomes very much a kind of hand clamped over the genitals and shame gets ramped up as a kind of a sin so you know the fall you're born sinful and sex becomes the big human frailty i mean it always was but that gets you know magnified and magnified until you know you're sort of doing everything you possibly can to kill off your body's sexual urges, going so far as to absent yourself from culture. Inevitably, because Greek culture is so fetishised in some ways by the Romans, who have this real kind of crisis of, of what the hell it means to be an educated Roman in the light of the fact that they've expanded into Greece and Greek culture is so amazing august because it's so old but terrifying at the same time and potentially corrupting like all gorgeous things are corrupting rome kind of inherits all of that then inevitably because of what happens in italy in the 14th 15th 16th you know then european culture inherits all of that and then, you know, by virtue of what's happening in the 18th century with elites traveling to Europe and the teaching of Latin and Greek being a marker of status, then inevitably, you know, modernity inherits that. And so I'm not sure we can pin all the blame on the Greeks, but at the same time, they are the instigators of something that then kind of spirals and it gets kicked against all the time you know someone like Rodin for example who you know is renowned for taking sculpture off the plinth and melting those bodies you know he's got an antiquities collection <laughs> so this is complicated stuff but it you know yes I think in all sorts of ways the Greeks they sort of are responsible and, and we really can't make them solely responsible <laughs> because it's all of those mutations you know Greek culture as we now understand it is so different but that's why, you know, reading your book, you make, you know, ancient culture so sort of relevant for the world that we're in now and the fact that we aren't all these perfect bodies. But also I kind of love the kind of imagination that goes with it as well. You know, in Ovid's Metamorphosis, I mean, the nature of it is transformation. And it's the fact that that's been happening for millennia. And this idea that I think what, what I think the sort of danger of the single story or the narrative, like you say, you know, I guess it, it being dominated by a sort of single group in society has actually almost minimised it, minimised it, minimised it. And then what's extraordinary now is that, you know, we live in a sort of more globalised world than ever where we've got such an amazing pool of information is that we can actually discover all these other or, or look at things differently and actually say, well, you know, people have been changing sex for millennia or all these sort of ideas or or they've been bleeding, you know, like, it's a bit like sort of feminist art. Well, you know, bodies can be gushy or can they, they can be all these yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's right. You know, Ovid is absolutely fascinating. You know, if you, here you've got this poem, which is all about, as you say, transformation, about bodily change, bodies changing into animals or into trees or into, you know, and you think, what on earth is this about? <laughs> but actually, it is a book that speaks to nature, culture. It speaks to the question of whether we're biologically determined or whether we're culturally constructed. It speaks to body dysmorphia. And so it is extremely relevant to us in the kinds of questions it raises. You know, I don't want to say that the ancients are like us because hell they weren't. You know, they were totally different. 
when a lot of the sculptures are not answers they're more provocations you know that sort of say well what do you think about this and how does this make you feel about yourself or about gendered relations and I mean I, I suppose you know for example there are people at the moment who really put a lot of premium on being constantly waxed or shaved and see that as being a real sign of beauty and for those people that do that where is that coming from well in part it's coming from centuries of looking at these marble and bronze bodies which are completely smooth yes you know some of the male sculptures have pubic hair but the women don't you know so you've got that kind of gendered signaling going on even in these sculptures which people were traveling from britain to rome to see very very early on and which you know people in houses on the strand in london were collecting already in the early modern period it's so interesting when you sort of almost look at a sort of aphrodite and supermodels or something as well, because I think there is a sort of correlation there. And also the fact that, like you say, with Ovid, there are so many different elements of transformation, but also what have those sculptures from antiquity been on the shelves of museums or in display? It also has so often been those perfect bodies. So let's say, for example, Hermaphrodite, mm. I mean, is an extraordinary goddess. I mean, can you talk a bit about that and why we don't see Hermaphrodite so ubiquitously as we do, say, Venus or Aphrodite? So, I mean, as you said, Aphrodites are replicated everywhere. And if you think about Giorgione or you think about Titian's Venus of Urbino, you know, there she is again, right, over and over. With Hermaphroditus, so probably around the third century BCE, sculptors make this absolutely exquisitely beautiful sleeping figurative form that then becomes even more languorous and lovely in the Renaissance when Benini takes one of these and puts it on a studded marble mattress, thereby making it look even more kind of luscious. And in this period, sculptors are really playing with the angle of attack, angle of approach. And so a lot of these sculptures are designed to make you feel one thing from one direction and then sort of force you as a viewer to be almost film director and kind of move the camera around the sculpture and so a lot of them are designed so that when you walk around them the narrative changes and your relationship with them changes in really interesting ways so that you know that moment of standing there in front of an Aphrodite thinking that you have the power is often then thrown back at you as your naivety is kind of exposed through this sort of movement and this sleeping hermaphroditus figure from the back you feel like you're looking at a sleeping Venus. They've got long, luscious locks and gorgeous kind of curves. And you're wanting to approach. You've got all of these stories about the Aphrodite of Canidos in your head. And so you're kind of getting closer and closer and you're being invited to move around the sculpture. And as you move around the other side, you're met by these glorious breasts and this glorious penis. Yeah. And it's like, whoa, hang on a minute. You know, this is more than I could ever have dreamt of. But, you know, if you were thinking of this as a sort of passive, then that is complicated in all sorts of ways. Hermaphroditus is a mythological figure that is configured as the child of Hermes and Aphrodite. So they are a minor deity in and of themselves. And 
Ovid tells their story in a slightly different version of the myth. That's the thing with myths. They're really kind of fluid and everyone can make their myth whatever they want that <laughs> myth to be. Um, yeah. You know, they're not like, you know, someone says, what's the myth of this? The, the ancients didn't think of them like that. But, you know, those stories and those sculptures show you that the ancients are really interested in thinking about gender fluidity. It's not that they don't live by the same kind of constricting gender binary norms that have hampered you know us for centuries but they are worrying away at them a bit and you can see that in sculptures like this I think and that's that's absolutely fascinating and you say that it doesn't have influence and in some ways it doesn't I mean you don't see many museums around the place my cast gallery for example doesn't have a plaster cast of hermaphroditas that's largely because we're a collection that was formed in the 19th century so we have the pieces that the 19th century wanted to teach with but something like Velasquez's Rokeby Venus, that is a version of the sleeping hermaphrodite. Really? I think so, because Velasquez, I think, was the person responsible for getting a copy of the sleeping hermaphroditus for his royal patron in Spain. I mean, the fact that he did that and that piece looks so like the sleeping hermaphroditus changes for me what that Venus in quotation marks is then looking at when because we only see their face in the mirror but what you know what are they looking at that's how I've always viewed that piece but I you know oh my god also so fascinating because it was slashed by the suffragettes as well slashed by the suffragettes, yeah. but also that's so fascinating because thinking about this idea of the way that vanity is portrayed in art history yeah I'm just thinking of like John Berger's ways of seeing in the sense that assuming that the spectator is male but also I think what's fascinating as well, which I learned from your book, is, you know, this idea of able-bodied and the fact that, you know, when we do go to, um, I keep saying this, but when we go to these cast galleries when we have a look at, you know, how many disabled bodies do we see in our history? And I wonder how your research sort of looking at disabled bodies, I mean, can you talk a bit about that? So when I took over as director of the Museum of Classical Archaeology, which is the cast gallery that you were talking about before, one of the things I did more or less on the first day was go and have a look in the store to see what was in the store to see whether or not they were duplicates which is what I assumed they'd be or what they were and I was astounded to find that they weren't duplicates and that some of them were these amazing pieces that had not been on show for at least 30-40 years probably maybe longer and one of them was a piece of monumental sculpture from Rome which has a very Roman imperial, second century AD bearded, sort of Marcus Aurelius philosophical type portrait head. But it has kyphosis of the spine. This piece is known in the literature as the Albani hunchback. And I just thought, my God, you know, we've got this piece in our store. And yet on our gallery floor, we've got 600 casts, all of them of non-disabled bodies. I have to do something about this. So I got it cleaned and it's now one of the first pieces you see when you enter the gallery, raising precisely that kind of problematic. You know, we were talking when we were in there about, you know, saying there's only so much kind of wet look drapery you can take, but there's only so many claims of physical perfection that you can take. I mean, these bodies are, are so sort of idealised. It's a bit like AI, isn't it? You know, the more you look at those bodies, the more you realise they're slightly unsettling real bodies don't look like that yeah well it's even and like instagram filters or something exactly yeah. and you know real bodies look short tall slim 
fat, hairy, you know, all sorts of things. And the Greeks and the Romans, not all of their representations looked like those in the cast gallery. There was far, far more diversity out there. And in the period after Alexander the Great, artists seem to have really been interested in exploring physical diversity in all sorts of ways. So, you know, not just in terms of making people emaciated looking or making them larger than life, but also they're exploring ethnicity in really interesting ways. They're exploring class in all sorts of interesting ways and they're exploring disability. And it all becomes part of using the art to think about humanity, really. And that's something that I think we tend to forget the Greeks did in their visual culture. It is very much of a particular moment. And of course, you know, that stuff's inherited by Rome, just as their 5th century BCE Parthenon sculptures that we think of when we think about it, just as that's it, you know, it's all inherited by Rome. Which is then inherited by the sort of 14th century Renaissance painters. But it's so interesting, you know, what they choose to prioritise. And also, you know, interesting thinking about your predecessors and them choosing, you know, it's always been like a certain person in charge. Yeah. And, and in a way, if you don't see it, how do you know it exists? Yeah. But I mean, also, you talk about race, which is also fascinating. Again, this idea that the sort of white marble porcelain figure, how often do we not see like a, a white Venus in art history as well? Yeah, you know, inevitably, when you bury sculpture, it loses its pigment. But you know, if you go to museums around the world, there are a remarkable number of Greek and Roman sculptures that still have paint traces visible to the naked eye, never mind under UV. And it is the case that a lot of these pieces that were pulled out of the ground in the 16th century and later were scrubbed, were taken to a restorer studio and scrubbed. You know, Michelangelo's, I mean, he's making white marble pieces. And that this fashion for kind of whiteness gets sort of added to the Greek idea of beauty and goodness, mm. sort of post-antiquity. The ancients, I think, they didn't think of the world in terms of black and white you know, it's not that there aren't discourses of ethnicity and antiquity. There are, but they don't map onto our racial discourses at all. But we've added this whiteness. You know, by the time you get to the 18th century, whiteness and perfection are kind of being talked about as in the same. And by the time you get into the 19th century, that's being used racially. And, you know, you've got pseudoscience measuring the head of of something like the Apollo Belvedere sculpture to sort of measure its facial angles. Because if, if the Apollo Belvedere is the most beautiful thing, then, you know, let's measure beauty. And then you measure human skulls. And you can see where that starts to go in ways that become increasingly dangerous. So that, you know, by the time you get to Nazi Germany, what does Hitler want to get hold of? Well, he wants to buy a Roman statue that is a Roman version of a 5th century BC Greek athletic ideal. And, you know, he buys it and he brings it back to Germany and he puts it in the Munich Liptotech. You know, the discus thrower becomes a kind of pin-up of all of that terrible politics. And so, you know, classicists are, are really beginning to kind of, you know, and have been for a while, but there's been some really, really good work done at the moment and, and kind of thinking about what we do with this heritage, really. 
Yeah, it's so interesting in terms of this idea of power as well and almost the template for power. I'm thinking of Mary Beard's great essay that she wrote a few years ago for the LRB about the sort of what, what is the template for a powerful woman? I can think of a sort of powerful man in my head very easily, but actually the image of a power of a woman, it's a bit more complicated. Yeah, it is complicated. And that's because, you know, it gets you into goddess territory. Yeah. And if you think about, I mean, this is very much Mary's terrain really but if you think about roman empresses and the ways in which so many of them are constructed as being the moment they step onto the public stage then they're you know sexually rapacious because they they have to be sort of brought down in kind of stereotypical female terms so being a powerful woman has always been difficult and it's hard to know what that looks like because you know antiquity as you say it gives you a template for what the male looks like and it's interesting that you know if you look at fashion ads today I think that male bodies in perfume ads look pretty much like the male bodies in my cast gallery. Whereas female bodies, the ideal has changed even in my lifetime. If you think about the Aphrodite body, that is a body that was prized as being powerful because it spoke of childbearing. You know, when I was 18, I wanted to look like Kate Moss. But now, of course, I think it would be much more you'd want to look like Kim Kardashian yeah. or Jennifer Lopez. There are many, many more options open to one as to what an ideal woman looks like. And yet all of those that I've just mentioned are about playing to a male gaze, aren't they? Completely. And it's like, well, where do we sort of have the human gaze? And what is a sort of woman in power? What does she look like? And in a way, she looks like a man. But it's so fascinating, isn't it? Like, I've been thinking about this idea of portraits when I think about someone like Michelle Obama in her first lady portrait by Amy Sherald. I mean, she looks so regal. She looks so powerful. And that is an example of, I think, a really groundbreaking image of a female, I mean, politician, essentially. But it is just fascinating how it is still sort of yin and yang, this like binary. When are we going to have that image of power that feels normal? Yeah. I mean, if you go back to the 6th century BC and you think about the figurative forms that were freestanding sculpture then, then the men's power is very much in their big muscles of a kind that you wouldn't get unless you'd spent hours in the gym and their nudity. And the women's power is in their clothes. And so other than that image of Aphrodite as goddess, most ancient women are represented bundled up in really heavy drapery. And it's, if it's not in their fabric, it's in their jewellery or on what they're wearing on their head, headdresses, headpieces. So that puts the emphasis on female clothes of always, you know, what the hell do you dress a powerful woman in? And by the time you get to late antiquity, I'm thinking about Byzantine empresses. There are some ivories that are just fantastic. They just look like they're so wrapped in this ceremonial kind of material that their femininity is kind of totally suffocated by it and I suppose it's a bit like that with you know there's all of that work that's been done on Elizabeth I and her iconography but you're right it's really aside from female body as dynast (laughs) or female body as goddess where do we occupy in between that if you want to depict a powerful woman you know there's the Amazon type from antiquity but then the amazons were female shaped but they were 
a woman of a kind that you would never want any women to be. They occupied the margins of the civilized world and they spurned men and they were warrior women. And that kind of Amazon has been appropriated for, you know, images of powerful women. But it's also interesting that they are sort of cast out on the side of society because it's a bit like Lilith or something. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting when you think about the ways in which the ancients then represented Amazons to themselves sculpturally, they represent them in a way that's actually very sexy, always with two breasts, always with one of them bared, because there was this sort of story that Amazons, you know, took off one breast in order to make them better at archery. No way. And yeah, there's stories about the etymology, I think, of the word Amazon coming from being one-breasted. But, you know, in iconography, they're always, they've got both breasts, they're wounded, but always just below the breast or just sort of at the side of the breast. They've got one arm above their head in that kind of come-hither gesture. It's all about attracting the male gaze to them. But antiquity can do that because you can look at that woman because she's an Amazon. She's not your sister or your mother. Mm. She's an other. And you can look at Aphrodite because she's not your sister or your mother. She's Aphrodite, the goddess of sex. You know, it's a bit like we were talking in the cast gallery. It's why by the time you get into the Victorian period, painters like Pointer can paint a nude woman and then you call her in the tepidarium or whatever. And suddenly she's okay because you've got that distance that comes of erudition or you've got the distance that comes of giving her a classical title. Yeah, it's just an excuse, really. It is absolutely fascinating. Carrie Vout, this has honestly been like a mind-blowing conversation. Thank you so much. We always do ask in the Great Women Artists podcast if you could meet a female artist. Now, from now history, who would it be? But maybe if there was a, I don't know, a goddess or a writer or an artist from history who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to her? Gosh, I mean, for antiquity, really, we don't know enough about any of the female artists for me to know whether it would be interesting or not to meet them. I think artist-wise, I probably would want to meet Praxiteles, who was the guy who's responsible for the statue that everybody thinks is the first freestanding female nude, the Aphrodite of Canidals. I'd want to ask him why he made her look like that. One of the stories says she's modelled on the courtesan Phryne, who was his lover. So maybe better, I'd like to meet her, actually. I'd like to hear her version of, of what she thinks is going on with the Aphrodite of Canidals. Brilliant. Carrie Vout, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the fantastic Carrie Vout. I am just in awe at all of her research exploring the classical body. And for those in London, I urge you all to have a look at a fantastic exhibition on beauty at the Welcome Collection that explores just this and that which Carrie has contributed to. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nada Smlelej. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Hold up. 